This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. This is Jethro Jones coming to you from Spokane, Washington. I am author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You and the host of the Transformative Principal Podcast. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit us at centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Hey there, Jethro. Well, welcome to Monday, Fred. <laughs> you know, this has actively improved my Mondays. I don't know about you, but I'm actually... Yes, this is so much, much fun. It is. It's good to look forward to this. And we have the pleasure of announcing that we will finally get a chance to get back together in person as of tomorrow. I know. That is great. I mean... All this time we've been away from each other, and we finally get to be in in person with each other once again. I'm and so excited. To, <laughs> I'm excited too. And the fact that we have to fly to the middle of the United States to do it, well, there yeah, you go. That's even better. We get to meet in the middle, which is perfect. We're going to Oklahoma City. Fred is speaking at the Professional Practices Institute put on by NASDAQ there, who we've talked a lot about in this program. And... So I figured it'd be good for me to go there and we can try to do some live in-person interviews while we're there too. 
Yeah, I'm excited. I think that from what I've heard so far, they're expecting somewhere between 60 and 70 uh, teacher licensing professionals from around the country. A little bit smaller than some of their previous ones, obviously, because of COVID and concerns about that and you know, travel just getting back up to speed. But this is the 24th annual meeting of the Professional Practices Institute. And it's actually the group, uh, the subset of NASTEC that brought me into that universe mm -hmm. uh, because our buddy Troy, who was one of our earlier guests, our earliest guests, uh, came across Cybertraps for the Young not long after it was published and invited me out to a PPI meeting, I think it was in 2004, uh, in Arkansas actually was Fort Smith, which mm. is right across the river from Oklahoma. And I don't know about you, but I get a little, um, what's the word we're looking for? A little obsessed with things like how many states have I been to? Yeah. And so I remember when I was out in Fort Smith, there was a break during the conference and I drove across the river and had lunch in Oklahoma so I could check off. Oh, box. nice. Very good. But now we're officially going back. So yeah. that'll be fun. Good. I think um, before we get too far in, cause we're going to talk about that, your talk that you're giving there this week. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I want to give a little update on our conversation last week, which was about student surveillance mm -hmm. and you will not believe the email that I got this week from my child's school. So I am excited to share this with you because it's a little bit crazy um, okay. because we had just talked about it. And so I sent an email asking for clarification. Guess what? I did not get back yet. Any kind of an response. Answer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Right. So they sent out a survey uh, or they're having the kids take a survey. I think it's like one of those youth, youth risky behavior surveys where they ask like, how often do you drink and how often do you have sex and things like that. Sure. And uh, so what, what stood out to me is in the email explaining that it said this year, schools and districts are being instructed to disable any recording keystroke tracking and video capture software on school issued devices used to take the survey. They are also going to instruct students to do the same on personal devices used to take the survey before they begin. So what? Interesting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I emailed and I said, Hey, what is the software that's installed and what is it tracking on student devices on a day-to-day -day basis? That was my question. And so haven't heard back yet, but obviously they're saying disable recording keystroke tracking video capture software. I mean, that's and the district's doing it. Well, yeah, I mean, I would I, I'm a, it seems a little ambiguous as to whether or not they're referring to keystroke software that maybe a parent has installed as opposed to their software. Mm, you know, it is I get that from the second part that actually yeah. is in brackets that says instruct students to do the same on personal devices. But um I don't yeah, know. It's an interest. Yeah, it's it's really interesting if they're actively doing that, and then related to that precise topic. And we're going to have to do an update on this if For and sure. when you hear back. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a interesting deal. But you may have seen the uh, headline that I sent you uh, yes. via email earlier, um, which was in Fast Company, which is one of my favorite 
tech journals. And what they're reporting is that a monitoring software company just reported that it may have inadvertently exposed millions of kids to hackers online. And we won't go too deeply into the article because we've got some updates on PPI to do, but I will put this in the show notes and people should take a look at it and really read through and understand the vulnerabilities that can arise. You know, if, if kids are um, providing information to the school, if they're using devices that have webcams that can be turned on, there's a lot of potential vulner- vulnerability there. And we should expect schools to stay on top of this stuff. Yeah. And your subject for the email was not surprised. So I think we can make a whole segment of the show called hashtag not surprised. And I think we'd be, we'd have plenty of content to put there. So I just put the link in the show notes so that people have it. And really this is something that we should be keep paying attention to and be focused on because it is, you're right. It's not surprising, but it's, it's happening. And this is the kind of stuff that we, we talk about that, kids shouldn't be at risk of being harmed in school. Exactly right. And Jethro, I just put in our ideas for future shows, hashtag not surprised. Excellent. We will will definitely get to that one. Awesome. Very good. All right. Well, let's talk about PPI. And um, do you want to give, I mean, we've we've talked about it before, but just give a, a little bit more of an overview unless you feel like we got it all already. No, I, I think that's really useful because this this particular show um, is primarily aimed at uh, educators and administrators out there. I really do encourage them to learn more about NASDAQ and about PPI. PPI is a little bit more specialized, but the broader NASDAQ program is a really great resource for schools and school districts across the country. Um, Just a little bit of background, uh, NASDAQ is one of the oldest professional organizations for teachers. It was established back in 1928 as, quote, a professional membership organization representing state departments of education and professional standards boards, uh, commissions that are responsible for the preparation, licensure, and discipline of K-12 educational personnel. So in connection with that, one of the things uh, that we probably should also put in our future shows is this idea of the clearinghouse that NASDAQ has been developing and operating for a number of years, which allows state departments of education and licensing boards to report information about teachers who have been disciplined. And one of the goals of the clearinghouse is to minimize the phenomenon that's often referred to as passing the trash, whereby a superintendent or a principal might not necessarily want to go on the record about why they're getting rid of a teacher, preferring that it just happen quietly and quickly. And then that teacher goes on to another district and further harm ensues. And one of the things that has been really interesting for me over the last few years is to get involved with a couple of organizations that are working on that problem and to talk to some of the victims of people who have been injured because we didn't have a good reporting system. And so this, I think, will make uh, significant inroads. Uh, The vision of NASTEC is that they believe all students should have educators who are held to high standards And their mission 
is to provide leadership and support to those responsible for the preparation, certification, licensure, employment, ethical, and professional practice. So that's right up our alley Mm -hmm. and continuing professional development of educators. So that's generally the background of NASDAQ. And then within that, PPI is aimed at the attorneys and the investigators and the licensing professionals like Quentin Dale, uh, Brian Devine, who are past guests of the podcast, uh, who literally work on these educator misconduct cases and try to figure out what went on. Yeah. And this is one of those things that you wish didn't have to exist. And yet you're really grateful that it does exist. And that's the the sad reality of, of the world that we live in, that people make bad choices and they put kids in harm's way. And it'd be really nice if we could just trust that if you chose to be a teacher, you were doing it with good intentions. And for the vast majority of people, they really do. And this group focuses on the investigation part, a very small subset. But the other part is the professional development of teaching people how to make better choices, which is a big part of the organization also. Is that a fair summary? Oh, I think that's excellent. And, you know, obviously, you know, as well as I do, that we have many institutions in our society that are aimed at helping all of us be better people, whether it's a church, whether it's community organizations like the Lions or the Rotary Club or what have you. I think that's just a fair reflection of human nature, right? That people are going to have things that um, arise that they may or may not handle well. And the commitment of NASTEC and, and within it PPI is to provide support and education for teachers themselves or for educational personnel more broadly uh, to minimize the chances of that happening. And quite frankly, that's really the point of the Center for Cyber Ethics as well, you know, given the fact that we're concentrating in phase one on the educational community. Yeah. So this is um, so your session is called TikTok. It's 10 p.m. Do you know what apps your students are using? And this, I think, is going to be a great session. And we're not going to get into everything. and We don't want to, like, spill the beans on everything, of course. Um, <laughs> but I, I do think it would be worthwhile to try and record that if we can. Uh, we'll see how how it looks and what the logistics are. But I just think that would be a, a cool thing. I didn't ask you about that beforehand, but... You know, we'll see if it's good, then I'll publish it. If it's not good, then we'll say it was great. (laughs) No, just kidding. (laughs) It'll be great. I've seen you present plenty of times, so I know it's always good. So that's kind of you to say. Yeah. So talk to us about what what you're getting at with this session and what what your purpose is in, in sharing this. It's a it's a good question, Jethro. The the goal of this, and actually, by the way, I want to point out that this the concept for this lecture is now like two years old, because uh, PPI last year got canceled as a result of the pandemic, and they were kind enough to reach back out to me and say, "Hey, can we just slide you into you know 2021?" Which course uh, was fine. So with with the audience being primarily investigators and licensors and attorneys, my hope was to provide them with an update in terms of the kinds of apps that are most being used in the school environment. And you know as well as I do, probably even better than I do, that educators are surrounded by these really tech-savvy people. 
you know, they may look young, but they've got really mad skills for doing various technology things. And so that actually, I think, exposes educators more than many other professions to the cutting edge of technology. And investigators need to keep up with that. You know, keep in mind that investigators are not in the classroom, right? They're not surrounded by those kids. So this is a really important point that people, I think, don't often think about. Just by virtue of being around them, you get exposed and are aware of more things. The zeitgeist of the of the world at the time is definitely something you pay attention to, that you hear about, what kids are talking about, that kind of stuff. But then also my personal belief on kids and technology is that the big difference is that kids aren't afraid to break stuff. And so they they go and do all the things that they can, whereas adults are afraid to break it. And so we don't get into those things because we also don't know how to use it. And that doesn't really bother kids either because they just ask their friends who do know how to use it. And then things spread or they look up tutorial videos, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, just being around it in like makes it possible for teachers to be more aware of that cutting edge. And that's not a small thing because there are a lot of things that I heard about that my siblings, kids were involved in that their parents had no idea what it was. And then they would say, my kid's doing this thing. And then I could say, well, here's my perspective on that. And here's what I'm seeing at school with that, which is really handy for knowing, you know, what's going on. (laughs) Not just, it's just a fun (laughs) dancing app. No big deal. Right. Well, I think, and actually, if you're referring to TikTok, well, (laughs) which I am, (laughs) I've got some thoughts on that. Um, But look, seriously, you're, you're making a great point, Jethro, because the thing about kids is that they're, they're a petri dish of learning for things that they're really interested in. And technology is fascinating, putting even aside, right, the psychological boost that companies give to their products to make them even more compelling. Even if they were absolutely psychology neutral, kids would still find this stuff fascinating. And so your point is, is again, right on that, that they're not afraid to break it. Sometimes they want to break it because they want to figure out how to use it in ways that aren't expected. And they are feeding each other huge amounts of information. So the goal here. Oh, and one other point, of course, which most parents are sort of aware of, but teachers are right in front of, is the faddishness of kids. They're always looking for that new thing, mm-hmm. right? The the thing that adults don't know about or, you know, offers new features or new ways to connect with other people. That's hugely compelling to kids, obviously. So, you know, the goal of the first part of this presentation is to give investigators at least a list of the current hot apps, you know, and this is obviously, as you can imagine, this is a lecture you could give every six months and it would change, <laughs> That's <right>. but, <laughs> but to give them a snapshot, not a Snapchat, but a snapshot of what's hot right now. And mm-hmm. then they can go out and they can educate themselves about the different functionality and so forth. And then the second part of the presentation is really to focus on what the investigative implications are of these apps. Because, you know, one of the things, obviously, that is at the forefront for these folks is that they're presented with allegations of educator misconduct, and they have to do an investigation. 
And one of the things that is just overwhelmingly true is that mobile devices and mobile apps have made those kinds of investigations both much more complicated, but then also potentially quicker because of the pool of information that people create about themselves. Yeah. So they're leaving a lot more evidence of what they're doing than they may even think that they are. So God, yes. (laughs) Real quick, looking at the, looking at the list of apps popular with teens in the show notes that you can find at cybertraps.com. There are, you know, probably 20 or so apps that you have on there. And many of them I've heard of because I'm paying attention, but you highlighted the big ones, which is Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat. And those aren't even, I mean, that's just three out of all those apps that kids could be using. And there are so many more that aren't highlighted in here that just exist. And, and that's just a real, a real issue that there's always new social media platforms popping up even if they're not specifically social media platforms that tie in some sort of communication or relationship building or something like that. For example, one that I love is called Goodreads, which is not like it keeps track of the books that I read, which my goal is a hundred this year. I'm at 86 by the way. So I'm getting pretty close. Um, So that's uh, the other thing about that though, is that people can message me and connect and, you know, build relationships on there. But that's not its not only what that's for, but those kinds of things do happen. And I'm not going to lie. I have had spam come at me already on that, on that app. And they do a really good job of keeping that out. But I had someone that I wasn't interested in connecting with already connects me on there. And I shouldn't say already. It, it has happened. But it's not like it's happening all the time. But those so many things exist that have that schema around them. And it's almost impossible to keep up with everything that that could be happening on there. It's it's enormously challenging. A couple of things I want to follow up on in terms of what you're referencing. For starters, you know, Goodreads is a great example. I got dragged into that by my sister, who's a librarian, and also because I wanted to interact with you know the hordes of readers who reach out. Yeah. <laughs> Please note the sarcasm. Um, but in any case, it's it's a great service, but it's perfectly illustrative of the fact that um, really for the better part of 15, 20 years now, programmers of websites and apps have realized that if they can foster a sense of community, then engagement in that website or app is going to be much, much greater. And, you know, honestly, the, you know, probably this started with the online adult industry in terms of being uh, very uh, forward thinking in terms of setting up uh, dating connections or other kinds of connections within their services. But it's a logical thing, right? Because we are communal animals and the more we can interact with others, the more attractive a given service is going to be. But the other point you referenced is really critical for the purposes of this lecture. And it's really, I think, a a concept that can best be summed up by the term selfie incrimination, Mm -hmm. that so many people are basically doing the investigators work for them by documenting their misconduct 
And, you know, in some cases, in particularly stupid cases, they're putting it onto social media. Mm-hmm. Um, there are plenty of um, examples out there. Hold on one second. That's all right. So one thing that's interesting is I just read an, an article about this guy who was a music producer and he wanted to increase his visibility. And so he, while working at Subway, he did all kinds of horrible things like putting uh, putting the meat on the toilet, like walking on the meat, dumping the bread out on the floor and then putting it back. Just horrible, horrible things that he said he was doing for the express purpose of building his side hustle of being a musician. And, you know, that kind of stuff, It people want attention and want notoriety and they think they want to be famous. And it encourages them to do things that are self-incrimination and that it's just, it's not smart. And it, it causes people to do some really awful things that you wouldn't think they would do normally. Well, yeah. I mean, look, I think, and I'll add this to our idealist for the future, Jethro, is that we need to do a show on social media challenges. Mm-hmm. Like there's the social media challenge of assaulting teachers, yeah. That literally has led to, you know, these kinds of filming incidents. And, you know, there's that, there's that peer pressure piece of it. There's the self-aggrandizement piece of it. You know, a lot of um, folks who do uh, tagging of buildings, you know, graffiti will maintain basically an online album of all of their work. And yes, some of it's really compelling, but they're also doing property destruction at the same time, you know, or drug dealers will, will post social media photos of their guns and money and product. It, uh, whatever it's, you know, we, we could do a whole show on that kind of idiocy, but you know, the thing is for investigators, the challenge that they face with all of this is figuring out the different kinds of data that they may be looking for and what the legal challenges are to obtaining it. And that's what the bulk of the second half of this presentation is going to focus on, because there are some really fascinating issues that arise Mm-hmm. from a constitutional or regulatory perspective. And one of the ones I think you would have dealt with as an administrator in the schools is what's the boundary line, Jethro, between a school's right to conduct a search and an educator's right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure? Yeah, that that is a really challenging thing with both teachers and students. And so if the school district issues a device to the teacher, as we've talked about before, we should basically assume that everything on that device is the districts. And so we should be really cautious about what we do. But at the same time, you should have some expectation of privacy in your personal life. And so if you are using your phone and not your school device to do some of these things, then should the school be allowed to search your device and is that unreasonable uh for them to to do and and those bring up a lot of really interesting challenging questions that um you know for for me as a school principal i basically said if it's on their personal device then we're only going to get it with a warrant and i'm not ever i personally was not going to ask to search your device because for me that was beyond what i thought was reasonable so i wouldn't 
I wouldn't do that. That being said, I know that it happens that principals are tasked with and do search employees' phones and not something that I personally would ever want to do, but, or that I would do, but something that the pressure is certainly there to do that. Well, sure. And, and I think your, your gut analysis is spot on, honestly. Interestingly, as I've been researching for this particular presentation, there's a surprisingly small amount of legal doctrine on the searching of educator personal devices. Mm. Now, there have been a couple of interesting cases where principals have gone into, for instance, a locked cabinet or a locked drawer and pulled out the contents of the drawer. And the law there seems to be, again, a little bit like having a um, an electronic folder on your computer that's on a school computer. You don't really have that great an expectation of privacy vis-a-vis the, the contents of that. But that really has not been updated for the mobile device era. But it does seem, given what the Supreme Court did in Riley versus California not long ago, and I think we talked about this, where there was a traffic stop and a cop seized a phone as part of that stop, which is permissible, but then went the next step and started looking into the phone itself. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court said that at that point, once the officer had physical control over the phone, he was obligated to get a warrant to do a further investigation. So So, it's, if I'm, if I understand correctly, it's like, if I had a, a fire safe little one in my house, then, you know, the police came and they could take that out as part of their routine investigation. But in order to go into it, they would need a search warrant for that. If they didn't have the search warrant already. That's probably true. That one I'd have to look into a little bit more, I, I, I think. But I think your analogy is correct. The The Riley case was interesting because previously the Supreme Court had said that if the police seize a car and they seize something within the car that theoretically could cause harm, right? So it's a box. And, you know, cops are under a lot of danger when they're doing these stops. So the court said it is reasonable for them to look inside the box and make sure there's no weapon or what have you, something that could cause them harm. But the phone can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so the point being that we have so much information on our phones that it becomes basically a search of our whole lives if the police can you know, stop you, whether they're being honest or not for a quote unquote broken taillight, which is the classic excuse. And then boom, there's your phone on the seat beside you. Oh, I'm going to go through that and see whatever. Well, and this also goes back to schools as well, because as students in high school start driving their cars to school, what they have in their cars becomes a point of interest for schools as well. And so if they you know, what if they have a device in the parking lot in their car that they're accessing the school's network on, which is very possible that it could still be their own device and they're doing inappropriate things on that device in the school, but on the school's network, I'm sorry, uh, in the school parking lot, but on the school's network. This is why I love law school so much. (laughs) (laughs) These great questions. And of course, coming back at you, Jethro, the question is going to be, is that kid 
over or under the age of 18. Right. There's plenty of states where they can drive to school at 17. They have a diminished package of rights at 17 that -hmm. changes dramatically the minute they turn 18. Yeah. So, yeah, if you've got a 17-year-old, all you need is reasonable suspicion. But Mm -hmm. three months later, with the 18-year-olds, you probably need to get a warrant. Even if you have reasonable suspicion, but then you get into the possibility of exigent circumstances. Is there an active threat? That would change the dynamic as well. Yeah, for sure. And of course, you know, for investigators, if it doesn't matter what their age is, if they're putting stuff on a public facing social media network, it's all fair game. Right. So so that's where the difference is. If your profile is unprecedented protected and not private and anybody can go on and see it at any time you have no expectation of privacy because you're putting that stuff out there intentionally and on purpose so having a private account that not just anybody can go and look is going to uh, protect some of your privacy but not necessarily if you accept anybody who requests to follow you then you know that's basically the same as as putting it out there in public so you just need to be aware that those things you know, there are different ways of, of dealing with those things. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, you know, <laughs> that should be fairly obvious to people. What's a little bit less obvious, I think, on all of this, Jethro, is, um, you know, the challenges that investigators face with the different kind of witnesses that might pop up in a case. So, you know, typically, um, or not typically, but more often than not, an investigation will start because somebody comes forward with information, right? So an educator might say to themselves, well, I'm doing a private Instagram message. It's not public. It's just between me and the student. So there's some reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, if you're doing something that violates school policy or the law, you know, in a criminal case, and the student turns that information in, to, for instance, you or to, you know, the school safety officer, there's no expectation of privacy with respect to that because that conversation was between two individuals and one of them can choose to reveal it to someone else. That's right. And so that's that's something where somebody can can choose to reveal something. So even if you think you're being private one-on-one, I mean, that's, I, I've said a hundred times, if if you don't want more than one person to know about it, don't ever put it in writing. And even if you yeah. don't put it in writing, if you say it, people still talk and they still put it out there. And that's sure. something that, you know, it's a little different when so-and-so said this, you can play a game of telephone. It's a lot different when you show your phone and say, this is what they texted me. I mean, that <laughs> game over. Sorry. It really is. And and one of the things that I think people are still slow to realize, and this is not a tutorial on how to get away with this stuff, but it's just a reminder of how durable digital information is. People try to use like encrypted apps or things like that. And I always come back to the infamous case of former U.S. Congressman Anthony Weiner here in New York, who, you know, almost almost Greek tragedy in the level of obtuseness in terms of his behavior. But his final downfall occurred when he was interacting with a student using the signal texting app 
And the idea of signal, the basic concept, is you swipe your finger across each line of text to read it. And then when you're done, it disappears. So the idea basically is that these are super secure text messages that can't easily be copied. But do you know how the 15-year-old preserved those messages? I actually don't. Well, she had a friend stand beside her recording her phone as she slid her finger across the messages and it recorded every line of the text messages. Yeah. Boom. There you go. And so all you need in order to capture almost any other piece of digital data is another phone. Well, and so you're talking about witnesses here is the, the victim could bring it forward. The perpetrator could bring something forward, but then sometimes, um, somebody brings something forward and then somebody else refuses to talk about or disclose or say mm. what's going on. And so, sure. so they're, you know, a different kind of witness, more uncooperative. Well, you must've run into that when you were in the schools. <laughs> yeah, uh, please. <laughs> you know, you, you know, some student knows something and, and I'm not saying you did kind of a Lou Gossett Jr. thing of up against the lockers, <laughs> no. but, but you're, you're talking to them and you're asking them for confirmation. And they're like, I don't know anything. Yeah. And, but I know you yeah, do. That- <laughs> I know for a fact that you do because everybody else has said that you were there. And you're right. refusing to say something. And right. that's where I, I take the approach of uh, Richard Shell, who we're going to have on the program here sometime soon. Uh, he yeah. wrote a book called The Conscience Code, and he calls these uh, situations, you need to be a person of conscience, which means that you mm-hmm. are going to do the right thing, even if bad things could happen to you. So the old stitches get s- snitches get stitches saying that if you tell on someone, then you're going to get beat up. That's a real threat in schools. Nobody wants to be a snitch. Nobody wants to be the one who's tattletaling. Um, And honestly, in schools, just as a side note, we've kind of set that up to be the case that we have um, put that in people's minds. And uh, anyway, that's just a side note. We could talk more about that later. but, (laughs) But that's a real issue that people have to deal with, that they don't want to reveal everything. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And and a good chunk of this presentation for PPI could be on the social aspects, right, of interviewing witnesses and breaking down those kinds of, of barriers to information. But obviously, I'm going to be focusing on the digital technical end of things. And the last thing I think we'll mention before we wrap this up is that there's an ongoing challenge in terms of getting information from the services and the apps over which it is created or distributed. And, you know, I I've worked on some civil cases, Jethro, in the, in the computer forensics that I've done. And if you're not law enforcement or you're not an administrative uh, investigator like Quentin or Brian, um, you have almost no chance of getting information out of a Snapchat or an Instagram or what have you. And increasingly, a lot of these services are setting themselves up so that the information is encrypted to them. And so they would say basically, Hey, we can't read it either. Not our problem. Yep. Yeah. And that, that certainly makes it difficult when you know there's evidence and you can't access it. Well, exactly right. uh, I'm excited. This is going to be awesome, Fred. I'm excited to see your presentation. I'm excited to uh, hear it and excited to meet a bunch of people down there at PPI. 
It's going to be a great trip. We will hoist uh, something to celebrate actually <laughs> being in the same time zone. And uh, I think uh, we'll have some great material for folks going forward in the next few weeks. So Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast in the coming weeks. We will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, digital investigations, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you will share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions, topic, or guest suggestions. If you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating and review. Make sure you subscribe, and we look forward to seeing you on our next show on Thursday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.